Thank you, Josh. I was kind <clears> of <throat> sad when I heard that Chad wasn't going to be able to preach, and I thought, well, how am I going to kind of fill in for him? And so basically, I thought, being Chad, I guess I'll have to preach for an hour. <laughs> yeah, hour and 15, yeah, put together a couple of messages, you know, see what I can do. But yeah, <laughs> that too. I think I will uh, see what I can do in order to fill his shoes. I know that we were in the topic of Psalms. He was going to be preaching on a Psalm and uh, starting on Thursday, I didn't feel I had enough time to do justice to a Psalm. Didn't have enough time to really put the work in, I think, that would have required to, to preach that. So I'm going to be taking a look at another topic this morning with your grace and we'll see how that goes. Um, before we do, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we begin, shall we? Father, we do come to the throne, thankful for this opportunity. Lord, what a privilege you give me, even on the spur of the moment, to come and to share your word and to seek to honor and glorify you through what I say here. Lord, I just pray that you'll take my poor words, Lord, and give them your power, and that you would touch hearts with those words, that they would meet needs that you see that I perhaps am not aware of. And I just thank you for each one here today. Just ask your presence of your Holy Spirit as we look to the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me share some scripture with you from the Gospel of Matthew. This comes from Matthew chapter 11, and I'm going to be starting at verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way for you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear let him hear. We were talking about Chad and a lot of fond memories of him. One of the fond memories I have of Chad is one of the things he did in starting a book club here at the church. 
Uh, it started and we, we, we meet, met, we still meet regularly, 6.30 on Tuesday mornings. And Chad was not content to have us reading devotional literature. I remember the time that I first started coming, we were plowing through 900 pages of Grudem's systematic theology. We were being thrown into the mosh pit of intellectual discussion and depth. And it was good. We really enjoyed it, and indeed, when Chad left, we had enjoyed it so much, we kept up with it. And right now, one of the books we have been reading is a book called Strange New World by a theologian by the name of Carl Truman. And it's talking about the world we live in today, the world as it is. And not only that, but he goes deep into philosophy to show us how we got to the world we have today. And I'm not going to give you a heavy philosophy lecture. That would take even more than Chad's hour. But I, I am, however, going to kind of leap from that. One of the philosophers that we were introduced to was a man by the name of Reif. He died about 15 years ago. He was an American. And he had a theory. He said that... Uh, ages or nations come in three stages. There's the pagan, and that's the first stage. And the second stage is, if you will, the monotheistic. This is the second stage. And the third stage is the self. Let me read to you what he talks about in that third stage. The late Philip Reif, sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania, argued that cultures have traditionally justified their moral orders, the set of values by which they organize themselves and regulate behavior, by appealing to a sacred order and the traditions rooted in that order. In other words, they regard their moral codes as having authority because they are grounded in something beyond this immediate world, the flow of fate or the will of the gods or of God. Now, Reef is not a Christian, but what he says speaks truly even to us as a Western and as a Christian nation. He goes on and says, in today's Western world, however, the notion of a sacred order has largely been abandoned. The fear of theocracy and the, and the demands of the pluralism that marks our societies, in addition to the collapse of the authority of traditional religious institutions, have combined to make appeals to any kind of sacred order implausible and even unacceptable. And according to Reef, that places us in an unprecedented and highly volatile situation. Our cultures must now justify themselves purely on the basis of themselves. As with the collapse of the authority of church, nation, and family, this creates a vacuum of moral authority that is filled with the competing voices of a myriad of new identities and no objective way of adjudicating between them. Basically, to boil the philosophy down, he's saying that you and I as Christians, even 20 years ago, lived in a country where even if the country itself wasn't Christian, believed and held as its moral foundation much of the teachings of Christianity. And if you look back within the last 20 years, Reef would say that we switched, that indeed, that underpinning, that foundation has been blasted away. And for you and I today, I'm not going to talk about deep philosophy, looking at the future through that. I'm not going to try and get into that. But what I am going to say is that everything I read 
as deep and as impenetrable as it may have sounded, applies to you directly today. And it applies to you in a very simple way, doubt. If you look around us, you see the rise of doubt, not just outside the church, but within. To those of us who kind of follow these things because we're pastors and elders, we see the rise over the last 10 years of what they call the nuns. And we're not talking about Catholic ladies. We're talking about all those people who when asked, check the box, none, when asked what religion they are. It used to be a minuscule amount. Nowadays we're up over 25%. And we look another direction. Those of us who follow these things, we see something that we had never heard of before about 10 years ago. It was called deconstruction. It was a method whereby a person would take a look at the beliefs of their Christianity and begin questioning them, begin doubting them, and indeed deconstructing their faith to see if they could rebuild it. And as often as not, indeed more often than not, they end up walking away, leaving the faith. And deconstruction has gone from being something we had never heard of 10 years ago to where if you were to type into Google deconstruction today, you would find hundreds of websites. They're devoted to people who are going through this process. They call themselves sometimes ex-evangelicals. They were evangelicals, now they're not. And I bring that because what you're hearing that Reef was laying the foundation for directly applies to you and I in that the rise of doubt is all around us. And I'm going to go ahead and step out on a limb and suggest, I wonder if some of you here might not be struggling with doubt. And if you are, I've got good news for you. That's not a bad thing. Let me share with you something that comes from the pen of Pastor John MacArthur, gentleman that I have followed for 50 years ago, or for 50 years. MacArthur started preaching about 50 years ago made it his goal as a young pastor to preach through every chapter of the Bible. And I was just listening the other day, and he finally preached the last chapter of Revelation. Good man. But he said this about doubt. He said, unbelief, excuse me, he says, when the New Testament talks about doubt, whether you're talking about the Gospels or the Epistles, it primarily focuses on believers. And that's very important. It's as if you have to believe something before you can doubt it. You have to be committed to it before you can begin to question it. So doubt is held up as a unique problem of the believer. Let that comfort you if there's a doubt in your mind, if you're struggling a little bit with that or even a lot. And then another theologian by the name of Alistair McGrath said this. He said, unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt, doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. Reading those words should, I hope, bring some comfort, indeed a lot of comfort to those of you who may have in your heart of hearts, unbeknownst to anyone, been struggling with some doubts or doubt in your faith. And that's why we're looking at the passage we're looking at today. We're looking at Matthew chapter 11 and verses 1 to 15 because that's got the story of one of the greatest doubts you'll find in all of the epistles. 
not of John the Baptist. You see, John's question when I read the passage was this. He says, are you the one we thought or should we be looking for another? He's in prison as he is saying this. And he's knowing that it has not been that long. It's been less than a year more than likely since he was standing on the River Jordan and Jesus came to him to be baptized. What is it that John is remembering? If you go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and verses 29 to 34, you'll find John's recollection. He said the next day, he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. But you know what? John also remembered something else from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7 or chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 3 and verses 7 to 12, John remembered this. He said, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God from these stones is able to raise up children, for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist is asking the question now after spending almost a year in prison, are you really the one that I remember? Are you really the one that is coming, or should we expect another? John knew he was the Messiah, He believed, but he's in prison. And why is John in prison? If you know the story, John's not in prison for preaching. John is in prison because he went straight to Herod and condemned Herod for having his his brother's wife as his own. He condemned him to his face and he called judgment down upon Herod and he ended up in a prison precisely for that. He's been preaching repents, but he's also been preaching judgment, preaching against Herod and against his marriage and against who he is. And so now as he's sitting in the jail, he's hearing stories. The one I baptize, Jesus, what's going on? He's out there and he's preaching, but I hear him preaching repentance 
and I hear him preaching to the people and I see him healing and I hear stories of miracles that he's doing, but, but I don't hear anything else. John is in that prison and he's questioning his belief that Jesus was the Messiah. Notice, he's questioning, he's doubting because he fully thought that when he was tossed into prison for preaching against Herod, that Jesus would step up to the plate and he would begin swinging that sickle and he would be bringing judgment and he would be bringing fire and he would be the one that would be standing up and condemning Herod. He would be condemning Herod for his actions. He would be condemning sin. He would be condemning Pharisees. And all he's searing is miracles. All he's hearing, Jesus, what, what is going on? He's, he's you're, not, you're not judging like I expected, like I looked for. And that's what gives rise to the question that he has, to the pain that he's dealing with. And that's what gives rise to the doubt. You see, John shows us where doubt comes from. John's question is based on doubt because doubts come when Jesus does not seem to fulfill God's promises. He's thinking, what are you doing, Jesus? Are, you're, are you fulfilling God's promises? And that's where doubt for each one of us, hidden, spoken, it comes in our heart, not because we disbelieve, but because we start to ask ourselves, is Jesus fulfilling God's promises? And we aren't sure how he's doing it. We don't understand. That's where John's question comes from. That's where the questions and the doubts that we have come from. John is hearing Isaiah and all of the Old Testament quoted. He's listening to Isaiah chapter 42 and verses 6 and 7 being quoted. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And John is saying, I've been sitting here for a long time, and I'm under a sentence of death a sentence we know will be carried out in the not-too-distant future. And he's saying, I know this prophecy. I know you're the one that Jesus, or that God called. I was there. I heard the baptism. I heard the voice. I know it's you. What is going on? And he's wondering, are you the one? Are you, are you fulfilling the promises? Because I'm not seeing it. That's where the doubt comes from. Look in your own heart. If you struggle with a doubt, ask yourself, is there something, is there one of God's promises that you're questioning? And if there is, listen to Jesus' answer to John. Because Jesus comes and shows him that he fulfills God's promises. But not just that he fulfills God's promises, but his people can often misinterpret them and not know that he's fulfilling them. What do we have here? We have Jesus, and he's talking to John. And he says to John, 
Go and tell him what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. He's saying, John, I'm fulfilling the promises. You heard the one from Isaiah. I'm fulfilling that. But he's saying, John, the fulfillment is not going to all come all at once. There's time. He says, I want you to see that I am extending the grace, the mercy, the love of God to the people. And I'm not judging yet. That time will come. But he's saying, I'm not judging yet. He's saying, John, look at the nation of Israel, a nation of sheep who are lost, wandering, with shepherds who can't do the job, those Pharisees. He says, and I'm coming to them, and I'm seeing them in their sickness, and I'm healing them. I'm seeing them in death and raising them. I'm seeing them in bondage, not in a physical prison, but spiritual bondage. And I am releasing them from that spiritual bondage. I am the Messiah. I am the one that came, the one who you baptized, and the one that was spoken about when you heard the voice. And I am doing all of these things. And you're seeing them. And there is your answer. Your answer is not that I'm not doing the whole thing all at once at one time. The answer is I'm fulfilling my promises. But my promises will take time. And he's saying and telling John and implying to John, and he is saying something to you and I at the same time. He's saying, John, what you're looking at is grace in action. What you're looking at is me preparing the way to go to the cross so that I can forgive all sin. And he's saying what you're not seeing right now is judgment because it's grace. He's saying, John, the judgment is coming. It will not be forgotten. But allow me to extend my love, my grace, my mercy to those around me, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind. Allow me to show God's mercy. And also, John, allow yourself to say, maybe judgment can wait because the longer judgment is held off, the more grace can be applied to. The more people will have the opportunity to hear. It won't just be a few people in small villages and towns throughout Israel. It won't be just people throughout Judea and Samaria. It won't be just people here. It'll be people throughout the world. The message will go to them and it will go to them because of my grace, because of my mercy, because of my love, and it will go to them because I'm not calling down judgment right now. I'm extending grace even to Herod in his sin, the one who deserves judgment most because it is so public. I'm extending grace to him to give him time to hear me, to repent, to come and seek forgiveness not judgment. So Jesus is telling John, he wants him to understand that he is fulfilling his promises, but he's misinterpreting them. And I would also say, sometimes that can be the same in our hearts. It can be the same in our lives. We hear 
the message. We hear the promise, and we like a lot of what we hear, and we want it now. And we also like some of the stuff that we hear that's going to be applied to others, and we want it done now. Listen to God's grace. Listen to what Jesus says to John. Understand his promises are not withheld because he won't fulfill them. They wait on his grace and on his mercy because the time will come when they are going to be fulfilled. See, John's doubts come when Jesus doesn't seem to fulfill God's promises. And Jesus' answer is, I am fulfilling God's promises, but you're misinterpreting them. Know them and understand them completely. That is where the true answer to doubt begins to lie. Because if you've heard Jesus and you're questioning his pro promise, whether he's fulfilling it, ask yourself if there's a reason he's holding back. See, this is what we need to understand. This is why so many of those that I read about who do the deconstruction thing, they don't believe that God is fulfilling his promises through Jesus Christ because the world is not at the snap of a finger turned into a magnificent place. We're not back in the Garden of Eden without sin, with everyone loving each other, with a perfect foundation. And because they don't see that, because they don't think about it, because they're saying, God, you're not fulfilling your promise to all of us. Therefore, you must not be God. They're doubting, and they let their doubt move them from faith to unbelief, like we talked about with McGrath. You have to believe to doubt, but it's when you quit doubting and start disbelieving. That's when you walk away. That's when your faith is deconstructed. And I would suggest that we're going to face a lot of that question. I read that long, involved passage at the beginning because I wanted you to see that 20 years ago, when all of us were still here, in our lived history, we can remember the United States whose moral values stood, even if they wouldn't acknowledge it, on basic Christian values. And we look around us today and we say it isn't there anymore we have strayed from that there is no Christian foundation left right now and because there's not everyone around us is going to be claiming the right to say what is right and what is wrong and we are going to be the ones who have to stand we're going to be the ones who have to say I've had my doubts but I believe Jesus Christ is going to fulfill his promises. He's going to fulfill all of them, and he will do that in his time. But I will not walk away from my belief just because of my doubts. Look to his promises. Look to what he says. Let me just share one last point. We've talked about John's question. We've talked about Jesus' answer. And I want to suggest to you that your faith, if you're struggling with a doubt, small or large, your faith will be renewed by confirmation that Jesus does fulfill God's promises. Take a look at some more passages from the Old Testament. Isaiah 
chapter 29 and verse 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. We saw Jesus do that. Isaiah chapter 35 and verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus was fulfilling that in his day, continues to do so. Isaiah 26 and verse 19, he says this, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And then in Isaiah chapter 61 and verses 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Jesus himself said these words quoting Isaiah, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. You see, Jesus fulfills Isaiah 61 and verse 1, and when you get to verse 2, He's proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. You and I live in the year of the Lord's favor right now because we can hear the word. We can respond to Jesus. His mercy, his grace are freely available. But we also are looking forward to what John was kind of missing. And that is, even as he proclaims the year of his favor, he announces the day of vengeance of our God. He tells us, that in the midst of his grace, judgment will not be forgotten. It will not be overlooked. It will not be left aside. It will come. He says, it will come. And just as he brought about the year of the Lord's favor, just as he healed the blind, raised the dead, gave voice to the mute, he did all of those things. He fulfilled all those promises. He will fulfill the promises that he's made that are left to come. That's what it is that you're hearing in this. That's what it is that is going to, I believe, really deal with any doubt that you might have. Don't doubt. God's promises will be fulfilled. Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we may not understand how it's fulfilled. I'm sure John struggled with that. But the key is the faith that recognizes all of the promises that have been fulfilled and trust that the others will not be forgotten and will be fulfilled. And let me close with just one last point. I spent a lot of time going through verses 1 through 6 of Matthew chapter 11. John's question, Jesus' answer. But I want to pick just one point out of what he says to the crowds when he is speaking to them. And he talks about John and a really very clearly clarifies he was a prophet in verse 9. And he says, truly I say to you though, in verse 11, and hear this, truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And he's talking all the way back. He's looking at Moses, Abraham, David, Solomon, all of them. He's saying none has arisen greater 
than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And he's talking to you. Because you, if you know Christ as your Savior, you are in the kingdom of heaven. And he is saying, you are greater than John the Baptist. And why is that? Because when John came preaching, he was the only one that really knew who Jesus was. He was the only one who knew he was coming. He was the only one who recognized what he would be and what he would do. He was the only one. You and I look back from this side of the cross and we see everything that Jesus has done. We see every promise that he has fulfilled. We see every work. John didn't even live to see the cross. You and I know all about the cross. And the example of the love of God that that cross provides. And because we look back and see that, and because Jesus has not come and stomped his foot in judgment 2,000 years ago, like John was asking, because he hasn't done that, because we are looking back at the cross and we're seeing that, we can announce that God's grace is still available, that God's love still rules, and that one day there will be judgment, but there is still time to avoid it. That's why Jesus can say here that the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he because of what we know, what we look back, and what we've learned. So take that with you, too. Take that when your doubts start to assail and find your peace and your strength. In those words, you're greater than John the Baptist. You've seen the promises. You've seen the cross. You've seen it all. You've seen his grace. And that will give you your strength. That will give you faith. That's what Jesus is trying to say to you and I today. If you're struggling with doubt, good. Because it means you have faith. If you're struggling with doubt, good. Because it means you're wrestling with Jesus. And with his word. And with his promises. And he can show you the answers. He will give you what you need to overcome those doubts. Rejoice in those doubts. Rejoice that you are greater than John the Baptist. Rejoice the world you've lived to see. And rejoice most of all that Jesus and God in his grace has withheld his judgment even when we want to see it sometimes so badly. But he withholds it out of his love. Let's look to him in prayer as we close, shall we? Father, we do come now to the throne of grace, thankful that you have fulfilled every promise you've ever made that we see, and you will fulfill the rest of them in their good time. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your reminder of who we are. And now, Lord, help us to go out, strengthen that faith, overcoming those doubts that arise, and following you. In Jesus' name, amen.